Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 20th of the 11th, which you may know more commonly as a Friday. Michael, how have you been? Oh, I've got that Friday feeling. You've got that Friday feeling where you want to talk about abortion studies? I, I never don't want to. I know, Michael. It is it is the cutting edge of pleasant table conversation. Yeah, yeah well, and this particular report is absolutely the definition of what you'd want to talk about uh, for pleasant table conversation. Uh, not that it will surprise many of uh, show the people like ourselves who took a particular position on the late uh, referendum. Uh, I don't think... It will get a great deal of traction in the wider media. Well, it hasn't yet, shall we say, you have to say. This is a wonderful example of the value of gripped in this media landscape, which would be a point to tell people that if they enjoy Grip's content and they would like to see it continue, that you should go to Grip's website and set up a monthly donation of an affordable amount, because God knows no one else is going to cover this study which is called Fetal Medicine Specialist Experiences of Providing a New Service of Termination of Pregnancy for Fatal Fetal Abnormality, a Qualitative Study, uh, which was effectively a study that looked at those who have been conducting uh, abortions in Ireland since the referendum and how they felt about the process, both technically and um, the mental and social effects of the process on them. It's actually an interesting idea for a study. It was done by people down in UCC, University College Cork, in their Centre for Maternal and Child Health Research. And it has some interesting things in it that are unsurprising, but I, I don't see people want to talk about. But I, I may actually have been wrong, Michael. It may, it may not only be gripped that talks about this. And so people, if they were considering a donation on that basis, may have to reconsider it. Because I am absolutely sure there will be a journal fact check of this at some point. You think? <laughs> that would be an act of, at the very least, bravado, that the journal would consider itself qualified to fact check a, an article in the International, in, in International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's the journal, Michael. They will put a, a wonderful piece of the explains. No, this is this is not quite what's happening, um, and it'll kind of ramble around a bit, and then it will end. Yes, so but people will be able to say afterwards. Well, I will actually. The, uh, they'll lean back in their chair and smile slightly back and say, "Well, yeah, actually, I think you'll find the journal did a fact check on that." And they found that to be false or misleading, or at the very best, not com- not wholly true. Mm. I think a lot of the time they won't even the people that. I'm thinking, won't even say that. They'll just lean back and think it's sufficient to say, ah, yeah, yeah, I think you'll find the journal to fact check on that and rely on the fact that the people listening to them will just assume they'll fill in the gaps. What I like about journal fact checks is you can kind of tell how bad they're going to be because they have like an internal rating scale of, you know, true to not true and everything in between, but they don't always use it. Yes. So sometimes they just seem to be like, "Mm, no, no. No, don't like that. No, no, that just... No, but we're not going to give it a rating, because a rating no. can be disagreed with. Yeah. We just want you to know we don't like it. Um, but anyway, on to the study itself. Now, I will put a link to the study in the bottom of this podcast, because, you know, with something like this, if you're interested, it's always good to see the source material. You may need uh, access to the journal itself to access it, unless, of course, you were to go on to something like... Uh, 
Sci-hub. Not one of those Russian sites, Gary. I think, well, Belarusian, I think, actually, Michael. Even, <laughs> even worse. Even more. So. I mean, what is it? I think it's sci-hub.se, and it, it's a terrible site, which you should never use, where if you put in uh, the URL of a journal you're trying to access, of a paper that's behind a paywall, it will just give you it for free. That's horrific. It's, it's awful. I mean... It, I think it's important that people out there know that it exists so they can just avoid it and maybe not accidentally. As, as a group with strong links to you know intellectual property groups all across the world, I can only condemn in the strongest possible terms, SEI-HUB.SE, where it's easy to use interface and open access to nearly all scientific information in the world. It's horrific is what it is, yeah, Michael. Yeah, it is horrific. And I think we might later on at the end just re- repeat that uh, just so that people are very clear. I mean, you could accidentally wander onto it. And then where would you be? So we need to we need we need that URL deeply ingrained in people's minds so they can avoid it. Yeah. But anyway, so because this was focusing more on just the experiences of uh, fetal medicine speci- fetal medicine specialists, it's you know it, it's a qualitative work. There's no numbers. There's no proof of anything in it other than the fact that they went to these doctors and said, "Look, what's happening?" And the doctor said this. So. It was also a very small sample case. It was 10 fetal medicine specialists. Yeah. But that was, that meant they had at least one person in five of the six fetal medicine units currently open in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And why it was particularly interesting, there's lots of stuff that's really interesting in this, uh, particularly on like, how does a doctor decide when fatal fetal abnormality, how does the doctor decide when something is fatal? And because this is not a political piece that people are quite open about, it's actually very difficult to decide when something is fatal because there's always outliers. And if someone has something where they might die after a couple of years, is that fatal or is that just not? But one of the things that they um, that they particularly highlighted, and this is where the controversy is going to come from, is um, it's it starts talking about the need for teamwork and peer support, but then said... That those that they um, that they interviewed had had conflict with colleagues regarding the diagnosis of fatal fetal abnormality and the provision of feticide and palliative care to infants born alive following uh, a termination of pregnancy. Um, I will, as I'm talking about this, I will be using the terminology in the report just for ease of use. Um, so basically, what that means is that colleagues of theirs were saying that they would not provide palliative care to an infant if it was born alive following a termination. Which yeah. happens. It's not... There's different ways of carrying out an abortion, and I don't want to go through all of them because they're not pleasant, but there are ones which involve feticide, which will effectively kill the fetus or destroy the fetus, depending on how late it is in its um, development, before it is expelled from the woman's body. And there are ones where birth is just induced particularly early and the um, the infant will then just die very quickly because it's not developed enough to survive. Yeah. And in this instance, it was related to infants being born alive following the termination, which can happen even when uh, feticide is carried out because sometimes it doesn't take. And effectively what was happening is they were saying that their colleagues were saying they would not give palliative care in those cases. 
Yeah, yeah, I think was, if I, you, you correct me if I'm, not, I'm wrong here. There was a case where, where it, it maybe actually separate cases where a doctor talking about the you know the the the, the, the features like in the later cases where you have to he's he, the emotionally impact he talked about the, the problems of the sense of you you're injecting directly into the fetus's heart, and it is actually and he's one of the. I think Mormon referred to talk, calling themselves Doctor Death, which I thought was an interesting psychological mechanism there. Uh, you know, a sort of a, a very black gallows humor. But that in in cases where they were presented with the, the reality, now I think it's interesting. Just thought it means that you, you we talk about feticide. The, the the report talks about feticide, and then after palliative care to infants born alive, because of course once they're born, they now become infants. Stopping fetuses as they become infants and infants born alive, and there was a one case of the doctor desperately looking for someone to help, and no help being given. So I have I've reached out to the study authors to see if I can get more of the um, transcripts of the interviews themselves, because there's there's two ways you can read this. This is where you read it and say this is something that's happened, or you say. Something that's happened here is not that an abortion has been carried out and um, an infant has been left without pain relief. It's that the debates about this have happened and that these people have been told that in those cases palliative care will not be provided because it's effectively their fault for not providing, uh, for not um, uh, not implementing universal feticide. Um, from the tone of it, it sounds like this is something that has happened so, I mean, I'll give you a direct quote uh, from it. It said, Over half of the doctors experienced conflict with neonatalists. Participants reported frustration that these colleagues would engage in decision-making for termination of pregnancy for fatal fetal abnormality, but would refuse to care for the women and her baby if the driving force was termination. This generated concern for doctors as they are unclear who will look after these babies if a baby is born alive following termination of pregnancy by induction of labour and without feticide, resulting in them begging people to help them in providing palliative care. That's that last part of that sentence to me seems to be indicative of something that has happened or is happening, because that language begging someone doesn't sound to me like someone is speculating on a hypoth- on a hypothetical situation. Now, I'm 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 obviously I'm engaged in parsing this language, Gary, but to me that's how I would read that sentence. Yeah, I mean, and a further quote from it is: um, "Furthermore, the doctors describe neonatologists' refusal to provide uh, perinatal palliative care to the baby following a termination of pregnancy by induction of labour and without feticide, with some of the doctors describing experiencing pressure from neonatologists to conduct a feticide." Doctors identified these experiences as a source of tension and conflict, as they felt that in the absence of universal feticide, perinatal palliative care is warranted for these cases, but they are left begging for support to ensure its delivery. That also uh, reads as if that is happening. And language elsewhere, even in the acts, uh, the, the results section of the uh, abstract, also uh, make it sound like this is something that is actively happening, and that wouldn't be unusual. These a number of these cases happen across Europe. They're not, they're not terribly common, 
but they're not terribly rare either, depending on exactly how abortions are handled in a country and um, exactly what they do with it. But that would be um, that would be a bad thing, I think we would agree, Michael. I think, it, the whole I think that would be the, the general line on it, that that would be a bad thing. I, I, I think it's also curious. I mean, there's no point in relitigating these things, uh, the, what we went through in the referendum, but I think this is worthwhile drawing attention to this, that they used the FFA, the fatal fetal an anomaly, when it was widely agreed both by the HSE and by the medical associations that this was a, a fund, this was a term invented by the press, used by the media, fatal fetal anomaly or fatal fetal, fetal abnormality, um, and wasn't the medical, wasn't the correct medical language to be used in these cases. But we're still stuck with this, and I think that there's a very good reason why this language is used, because this language con conveys a, a, an idea or a message itself, which is one that they wish to, and it, it provides a certain clarity, fatal, fetal, it's fatal, you know, when the reality, when, well, we shall see, we don't know, but the suspicion strongly was that the legislation as it was... Uh, drafted did not necessarily cover simply those uh, conditions which were always and inevitably fatal. I mean, there is one other... There, well, there's actually a lot in this that I actually find quite interesting because, as I said, because it's not a political piece and the referendum is behind us, there's no real attempt to make this politically palatable to either side. So I'll just casually mention things like Ireland's legislation has no gestational limit on termination of pregnancy which I remember during the referendum was something very much fought back against. Oh, absolutely. That was, that was fear-mongering, panic-scaring. That was just simply not true, that there were definite explicit limits. There were tight controls. We were going to be introducing highly restrictive, highly restrictive, Gary, I was told several times, highly restrictive legislation. This was, no, this was a nonsense. And yet there it is. Yeah, um, the problem with with later terminations is that unless you 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 engage in feticide, unless you kill the fetus deliberately and rather than inducing early birth, you increase the likelihood of a live birth that will then die, uh, or will be left to die. And different countries deal with this in in different ways. In some countries. They will administer uh, pain relief and they'll, they'll provide like a blanket. Uh, and they'll try and keep it comfortable as it dies, and others they'll just leave it alone until it's uh, it's done. There are even countries, Gary, where if a child is born alive, then it's given uh, medical assistance. I know that sounds like a bizarre idea that a, a, a living uh, human infant would actually get medical uh, help and assistance in a hospital from doctors and nurses. There are some that uh, that actually do do allow that to happen. I mean, yes, there are some countries where, yes, if you survive, there is a sort of, well, you've earned this. You know, it's a bit like, you know, the old, the old stories in certain places that if you, if you went for the, if you went up to the gallows and for whatever reason the gallows misfired and the rope broke or you survived the drop, then they would say, well, obviously there's some fate at work here and, you know, you, we're going to let you off and just put you in the fleet prison for 40 years of your life or something. But there are places, um, it, this is, particular issue has been a source of a, a long 
and bitter debate in the United States and various bits of legislation on either side. It was the only, wasn't it, the late president, not late in the sense of previous, not in the sense of deceased, Barack Obama, I think, was the only senator to vote when, was it, was it the state senator or the national senator? For the uh, babies born alive, there was a babies born alive act, which would uh, not that it would mandate care, but rather it would provide a legal protection for medical staff who did give care. I think I, I seem to remember he, he. It was a ninety-nine to one vote. Was, was, yeah, was so it? America actually? You you used to see a number of what in America were termed abortion survivors. Not, never a massively high number, but they, they did exist. Now, since then, the procedures used have become significantly more uh, certain in their fatality. So mm-hmm. you, aren't, you don't really see that many abortion survivors now. But there are a couple of, of well-known um, pro-life campaigners in America, particularly, who survived um abortion attempts i think the americans used to inject saline yeah yeah i knew a girl when i was in, when i was a student uh, and she was doing a doctorate in in rome and she her story was that uh, her mother uh, her parents were flower flower peoples uh, in the late 60s and her mother had gone for an abortion i think it was with the injection of saline solution which caused uh to which would kill one of the the would kill the infant and then cause of spontaneous uh, abortion, spontaneous miscarriage, deliver, early delivery. And her mother had gone for this. However, those things, her, they hadn't, uh, one child, a child was delivered, but what she hadn't realized that she was carrying twins and the other twin somehow, I don't know, survived. And she gave birth in the middle of one of those very famous concerts, you know, those like, I want to say like, the Isle of Wight, but not the Isle of Wight. One of those big things, and she, she had become the the. She was um, she was marked. She'd been scarred by the sail in her skin, but she became a, a in her day a very prominent uh, activist and advocate uh, in the area of abortion, and that kind of thing. They, they they used to happen. You have. I wonder if the reality is today not so much that. Possibly the fetus side is more effective and more efficient, more certain. Or possibly simply in the past, the children that were born and survived were more likely to be cared for. And now there are protocols in place so that the staff know what to do. And also simply after a couple of generations of dealing with this, people become more inured to the process and become shall we say, morally calloused. Yeah, I, I think there is there is an interesting thing here. As Ireland didn't have this for so long and then suddenly has it. Yeah. And so you get to, studies like this, you get to just see, you get to talk to people who've never had to do this before. And you go, How do you feel about this? And um, there's some kind of commonalities. I mean, when you look at, um, at how they describe feticide, uh, feticide particularly, the reports quotes people saying it was brutal, awful, emotionally difficult. Uh, they referred to it as stabbing the baby in the heart. They held themselves yes. responsible for the death of the baby. One of the direct quotes is from um, a doctor who went out and got sick in the hallway afterwards. Um, because it was so awful. But then there was also the um, 
the justification of that and the explanation of why it needed to be done, which was for, you know, it's for the woman. It's um, to provide full care for women, I think is the phrase that was used, at least. Yeah, to support women, to support uh, parents. It is, as I said, it's a very interesting study. Um, I don't know what will happen now with the study itself because Grips have reported on it. The journal, as I said, will probably do a fact check. Unless they have some problem with it where they can't get the answer they want, in which case they won't report it. But it is, I'd be very interested to see more information, like more studies of this type. Um, as I said, it wasn't a quantitative study, so they weren't trying to guess, or they weren't trying to say how many children had uh, survived a, an abortion through early induction of pregnancy. But as I said, it, it happens in Europe pretty consistently. Now, the only, I do remember reading one study, and this was years ago, this was during the abortion referendum, so I'm not 100% on the, I can't remember who, who wrote it, or 100% on the figures, but the general trend was they were, they were asking uh, various doctors if they had ever seen um, a, uh, a fetus survive an abortion and then survive as an infant for a time. And the numbers of doctors who were saying they had seen it was way out of whack with what it would be if some of the official figures from certain countries were to be correct. Like, way out of whack, as in too many doctors had seen it. And then that goes to the question of, well, what happens when this happens? Is there a certification process? Is there, does it require a death certificate? Uh, or is this simply seen as one would expect the fetus to survive for a while anyway? So... Uh, it wouldn't really make sense to have a death certificate in those cases because this is what you expect to happen. This is how this is done. Yeah, this is the aim and the purpose. Yeah. So a lot of places basically don't collect stats on this at all. Or if they do, if some of the early survey, or some of this, if this survey was correct, the stats may not actually accurately represent what's happening because there would perhaps be an incentive on doctors and hospitals to just kind of not mention this. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally you have a case like the, was it Poland a year or so ago? Yeah. Where a child was born, survived for an extended period of time while everyone just studiously ignored it. Yes. That was, and that caused it, that was a, it caused a lot of uh, anger and dissent in Poland. And I think it was, it was after that that the Poles introduced a more stringent regulation on uh, uh, abortion for fetal abnormalities, wasn't it? Now, Michael, it might not surprise you that there is a journal fact check on this. Is there? Mm-hmm. No, how joyous. And uh, which professor of uh, gynecology and obstetrics are they using on the journal? Susan Daly, who was the, uh, the editor of the journal at the time, and it has a two conclusion. The claim that this story has resurfaced and gone viral in Poland and that this is because of the Irish referendum is false. False. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that was a uh, I'm not sure that was ever a claim, but whatever. But, but, but you see you see there there you go. Sorry Gary, just cut you but you were talking about the, how they do that's the one of the other things they do. They, I don't know if it's a, it's a, if it's a form of straw manism or excessively high standards or whatever it is. But one of the things they do love to do is to put up a claim that nobody's ever actually made, and then surly, with a surly contempt dismiss it as the 
the ravings of the right-wing fervent conspiracy theories. But actually, nobody ever said it. But somehow they managed to they they succeed in attacking attaching some vaguely ridiculous notion to 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 a group of people that never actually believed it in the first place. I, I like the fact that they have a fact check on this, and it, it's claim two is that a Down syndrome baby born alive after an abortion dies unaided, screaming for an hour. And uh, that, that, they say, is unproven, Michael. Unproven. Oh, unproven. Well, no. Which is... Uh, Which is journal speak for saying, well, we can't say it didn't happen. Yeah, we would like to say it didn't happen. We'd really like to say it didn't happen. But they, they do say it was, it was broadcast on a Polish TV station. It was based on a letter. It was discussed in the Polish... Um, uh, Sir Jim. House of Parliament... Um, it was apparently from a report from anonymous employees at a particular hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, then they managed to put in the mass protests against proposals to re- further restrict abortion laws in the country. Mass, mass protests. But this actually isn't, this, this is like an old, this is May 2018. Whereas if this was republished now, the comments would, uh, would also uh, be turned off and they haven't. So... This is this is when the journal had uh, pretensions. <laughs> yeah, biggins. Yeah, that's the journal. But uh, yeah, so that's that's the report. As I said, we'll put a, a link in the bottom of it. It's well worth looking at if you are um, if you're interested in this sort of thing. And uh, I don't know. I, I it's odd in that the research is interesting. I think it's definitely something that should be done. Not just from a political position on abortion, but because it is also interesting to see the psychological impact and the practical issues faced by doctors who are carrying out abortions, uh, particularly in this case where we've just suddenly introduced them. Yeah, people who've never had to consider them before. It's not. It's not. It's not. I wouldn't. It's not an easy read, but I mean, it's uh, some of the little bit. There are some bits in this which are, I think, would. Be, People might find a bit upsetting. I don't want to be unkind, but I mean, there's. The, the, I think it's interesting that there you, you there are accounts of such strong emotional, visceral responses to what they're doing, but it doesn't seem to lead ineluctably to their conclusion that maybe this is not something they should do, but rather they they return. Well, it has to be done for this and for that reason, whatever it is, but. I just wonder if you were to do this in 10 years' time, would you see the same responses? Or is it just the nature of the beast that we become used to things? I suspect that is what we do. I would expect to see, you'd, you'd see psychological hardening. Yeah. Um, probably substantially so. Whereas this is sort of, it's a deeply unpleasant procedure. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Procedure. One of these procedures, they're not pleasant um, on either case. One thing I did find uh, interesting, just on the journal fact check, because a couple of other fact checking sites did this as well, and a lot of them did also go with him unproven. But the interesting thing is that those fact checking sites were able to find some of the Polish uh, newspaper reports on it, where the newspapers had investigated it. And you can kind of see why the journal didn't go down this route because the Polish newspapers that investigated it said, yes, this, this there was a child who had Down syndrome and also some heart and kidney defects. 
And yes, they tried to carry out abortion. And yes, it failed. But um, the debate was then about how long it survived, whether or not there was palliative care measures, mm-hmm. and whether or not the um, an infant at six months development would have possessed the ability to scream. Yeah, that was, I thought, I, I, I actually remember that point being made, which I thought was kind of ghoulish. There was a, a group of people debating amongst themselves whether or not a six-month-old would actually be able to scream. People confidently and rather smugly, oh, it's all nonsense. They wouldn't be able to scream. God, that, is that really, the, that's the central issue? That's your big thing. Uh, of course, it's yes, fine. Six months born was alive, but it wouldn't have been able to scream, you know. So I can, I can see why the journal didn't uh, find that piece of information, because, you know, that would have been, that could have been damaging. It would have been, as they like to say, problematic. So it's best to just say there's no real first-hand accounts of it, as opposed to, okay, yeah, it happened, but it only lived half an hour and not an hour, and it had other defects. And it physiologically couldn't have screamed. So, like, yeah, most likely. I mean, you know, okay, that's not to say it couldn't feel pain, but you I, know, that, that was. I remember when I was doing the uh, the work on the abortion referendum. One of the things I found most interesting is the stuff on pain, because I I didn't realize this until I started looking at it. But when you start looking at what the scientific and medical definitions of pain are, so, and this this is really interesting because what. Because the research, they were saying that fetuses can't feel pain through most development. And, well, certain pieces of, piece of research go other way, but it depends how you define pain. And what I found is that in the study of pain, they define pain as not just a response to a stimuli, Michael, but the ability to contextualize and mentally understand that stimuli. Yeah, which is so, really important. So by that nature, yes, fetuses can feel pain. But newborns can't feel pain. Animals can't feel pain. So you're sort of going, yeah, okay, that makes this substantially more difficult. Because if your argument is, well, they can't feel pain, but also if you break a dog's legs, it's not in pain by that understanding of it. I'm not sure I would think that's a good line of uh, attack. I'm not sure if the dog would either. If you sat down to the dog, listen, we're not going to give you anesthesia for this. Because the fact is, we don't really believe you can contextualize what you're experiencing as yeah, pain. So you, you are having a negative response to stimuli, but because you can't put it together into a cohesive whole, it's not pain. And we hope this is very comforting to you right now. <laughs> and I'm sure it would be. Yeah, the... the, the it always it struck me as odd that intrauterine surgeries always took place with anesthesia if uh, pain wasn't an issue for fetuses. Why, why bother? Particularly when giving anesthesia is always potentially risky and problematic in any surgery. There's always a risk. You just do not wake up. Yeah, always the risk. It is the most dangerous bit of most surgeries. I mean, most surgeries that take place are not difficult or complicated. The, the, they're co- surgeries that happen hundreds and thousands of times everywhere in the world, whether they're appendectomies or tonsillectomies or whatever. But the bit, there is a, there is always a certain proportion of people that simply don't wake up. Uh, so why you would actually give anesthesia when it represents a problem, I don't know, unless you could, maybe the response would be because it's not so much pain relief, but it causes the uh, subject to relax or not to become 
Titanic and exhibit, ex maybe exhibit the uh, symptoms of somebody experiencing a negative stimulus, Gary, like the dog with the broken leg. It was because we're, we're now on the topic of abortion, which I had not intended to talk this long about, because why would we? Yeah, we voted for it. It's here. Enjoy. Hooray. Take yeah, your ticket. Yeah. Enjoy your ride. Um, but there was something I was thinking of during the week, and it, I was talking to someone um, about England, and I casually mentioned the... Um, do you remember it was found a couple of years ago in England that um, some of the hospitals, some of the NHS trusts, had been uh, burning uh, fetuses? Yes, after, yes. As... as Medical in waste the, as part of their waste to energy programs, and they yes. they were using that to heat um, the hospitals, hospitals in Liverpool. And like I actually mentioned it, and I kind of moved on. They were like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah." You what? Report. It was yeah. The massive scandal in England. Like, what? When did that happen? I was like, "Ah, five years ago, maybe somewhere." I don't Is know it five years? Maybe. Ah, I think it was two thousand and fourteen, two thousand and fifteen. Okay. And I think it was it was. 15,000, I think, 20,000 uh, fetuses. But he was, out, he was outraged by this. And I was explaining, it's like, oh, it was a political scandal, but like, I don't really, I don't really get the, why it's a scandal. And they were like, what do you mean you don't, like, you're obviously on the pro-life side of things. And I'm like, yeah, but people in England. They're not. Voted. They voted to have this done. They voted for this to be classed not as life and effectively to be treated as medical waste so when a hospital then goes well it's medical waste and we burn medical waste for energy i don't think that's a scandal i think that's a continuation of the principle the public of england has accepted now you could you you might you might regard the principle as scandalous but the outcomes once you've accepted that i, I don't think the actual principle should have been accepted but if that's the road you want to go down well then that's the road you go down and something like this is neither now the only thing that was surprising about it is that the hospitals themselves didn't th seem to th realize it would piss people off. So they were just like, yeah, no, we, we do. Like, it's 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 energy efficient. Why is everyone screaming? <laughs> I thought we there liked a, energy efficiency now. There was, a, there was a, a, a certain tone deafness about the, some of the hospital responses, which even in, uh, even in a country which is remarkable by the lack of debate about abortion, I mean... There are a few countries in the world that where abortion as an issue is more settled. Um, the the tone deafness that the, the, the <laughs> that the hospitals displayed was quite remarkable. You know, they didn't have to you know, go over the top, but a little bit of editing in the language really would have gone a long way. I think there were, there are two real things that really really pissed the public off. Well, in general, I mean, people don't like to think about this issue. So if it's legal or it's not illegal, you just, it's done. You don't think about it. And you don't really want to hear about it, which kind of makes this a terrible idea for a podcast, Michael. Because that's all this is. But <laughs> yes. uh, I think there were two things. One was um, when they said that it wasn't just aborted uh, infants they used. They also used uh, miscarried infants. Yes. Yeah. And then when they asked the hospitals... What do you tell the um, what do you tell the mothers? And they went, well, we just tell them they're going to be cremated. Oh God, because uh, it's the same thing, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I mean, if they're being cremated, we're just using it for energy. I will, just... of course, include a link to 
a left-wing news report on this, just so you can see that this is a thing that happened. This isn't like a feverish dream. And then I think the, the British Department of Health very quickly just went, no, Jesus Christ, no. <laughs> no, 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 stop that, stop that now, quickly. Anyway, I think, I think as, as you say, this is, this, yes, maybe not the subject to, to, to absorb too much more of, of the process. Maybe we should move on to even more. I, I, good news for children instead, Michael. Yeah. Education Minister Norma Foley has announced there will be a no homework day for all Irish students for working so hard throughout the pandemic. <laughs> um, well, is this, is this Fianna Fáil scraping the bottom of policy ideas to get that last percent and get back into double digits? Well, I know at least of one Fianna Fáil senator who is uh, an advocate for lowering the voting age to 16. So... If that were, you know, let's let's put let's put this together here, Gary. Lower the voting age to sixteen. Fianna Fáil, the party of no homework. I'm sorry, this sounds like the ver- basically a version of a corrupt payment to me. This is a bribe. This is buying votes, well, potential votes, and I'm disappointed, deeply disappointed, Norma Foley, that she should be engaged in this kind of electioneering with our children. And no homework today is today. World Children's Day. There's now no homework. Today's World Children's Day, is it? Today, apparently. I only know this because Fianna Fáil told me there was no homework on uh, World Children's Day. And that's today. I think World Children's Day is like International Men's Day. It exists, but... You know. no, 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 it's slightly different. It's slightly different. Well, okay, it exists and no one pays attention as opposed to Men's Day, which is it exists and people just attack it relentlessly. Generally speaking, if you look at if you looked at the social media response to International Men's Day outside of a certain bubble, what it tended to be was let's use International Men's Day to remind men about their role in violence against women, or let's use International Men's Day for men to reflect on their privilege and their role in the oppressive patriarchy. Or let's use International Men's Day. To, basically, let's use International Men's Day to remind men what shit they are. And I don't think that's happening with the World Children's Day. I don't think the World Children's Day is let's children reflect on what a horrible burden and emotional drain they are on their children, on their parents, and just sit in the corner and be quiet and give your parents a break. I that's not happening. The, I put the people who on International Women's Day are like. But when is it International Men's Day? To which you say November the 19th. And those who on International Men's Day just put out some facile thing about the patriarchy. Just in the same box. They're just gnats. They're just annoying people. Uh, the Irish well, Times uh, on International Men's Day published an article titled Does International Men's Day Diminish Women's Struggle for Equality? Though well-intentioned, it can give a platform to those who begrudge the progress made by women. And that's the last thing you want to do is give people a platform. I mean, you, you couldn't have people going around talking, Gary, or saying things. I mean, what end could come of that? People going around saying things. That would be brutal. Before you know it, people will be doing things, Michael. Uh, and then after doing I'm them, thinking fairly, I'm fairly confident that in all of the studies show that in 99.5% of cases where talking is done, doing does not follow. Now, I'm curious, though, 
Why the 19th of November? What is special? What is particularly male of the, the 19th of November in Bulgaria? Any idea? Was there a good war? Um, <clears throat> well, let's see. Um, there was Liberius Severus declared emperor. Um, Mutesa II is crowned the 35th and last king of Buganda. Apparently it was uh, chosen for 19th November because the person who created it wanted to honour his father's birthday. There you go. I'm, I would have preferred it to be the fact that the United States Judiciary Committee began impeachment on the Bill Clinton blowjob scandal. Very male. Very male. Or another good one is the... <laughs> The First Balkan War. The Serbian army captured Bitola, ending five centuries of Ottoman rule of Macedonia. On that day, the 19th of November. How were we not talking about that more? The fifth, the, 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 the capture of Bitola and the ending of the Ottoman rule of Macedonia. You see, we don't talk about that. Or the Serbo-Bulgarian War. Are the children on today, International Children's Day, are they talking about the Serbo-Bulgarian War, Gary? I suspect not, because the system of education here is in a shambles. They should be doing more homework, not less. They should be learning about the Serbo-Bulgarian War. Also, what work have children done during this pandemic? Have we had them in the fucking COVID vaccine mines? Mining away? No. <laughs> COVID vaccine mines, yeah. Uh, no, we've, been had, we've had them up the COVID chimneys, I suppose. Looking for co- co- dead COVID crows, perhaps, I don't they, uh, using their small hands to weave COVID carpets and such. Or no, masks. Maybe there are I'll tell you what children have had to do, which possibly some children have found upsetting, is they've had to take exercise with their families. I mean, that's one thing you do. If you sit at a window and look at a street, where during the... Co- not so much this one, but the, the, the first lockdown, we had better weather. And you'd see lots of, again and again, families, young families out, and all in very smart tracksuits and all doing power walking or jogging or cycling. And I can imagine that there was more than one or two teenagers who couldn't understand why they had to get off their PlayStation and go and walk with their parents in public where people might see them. So I think International Children's Day could be a day when children don't have to go out in the public with their parents. You know, that could be I think there's a strong argument for bringing back child labour. Oh, absolutely. Unpaid child labour. Mm-hmm. I think that would be slavery, Michael. No, it's an internship. Just, <laughs> you just it's you're interning in the cotton factory. You know, Michael, you're, if, if if the founding if the founding Americans could have realised they could have stopped all the slavery issues by just giving everyone a name badge, God, what a different place America would be today. My name is Amos, and I'm interning on Master George's plantation. <laughs> yeah, that God, he, he's given me an intern wife. Yeah, it could be, it could, it could have, think of all the terrible, all that suffering that could have been avoided, you know, you could have gone to Africa, go to Africa, you don't have slave trade, you don't have markets, you go out, you hand out some forms saying, we are now taking applications for people who like to intern. Yeah, I mean, you could have the the wonderful when people say like, the Irish weren't slaves, they were indentured servants. And then you could be like, well, the Africans weren't slaves, they were interns. They're interns. I I love that debate. I don't ever get involved with it because I don't care. 
but it involves the worst that's a, people. That's a list, by the way. By the way, dear listener, the list of things that Gary doesn't care about is a very long list indeed. Yeah, the number of times fun in them. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the number that you can suggest to Gary, say, we talk about. No, I don't really care about that. It's a, it is it is a long and substantial list of things that Gary does not care about. Anyway, you're 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 not caring about this uh, and go on. But it's fun to look at from the sideline because it involves some of the worst people I know, <laughs> just in general. Right. And I've I've really loved the rehabilitation of indentured servitude for political reasons because I think. Up to about 20 years ago, Michael, the general yeah. opinion was indentured servitude was bad. It and had got a bad rap. Light. No and doubt. now there bad seems rap. to be, well, indentured servitude was in chattel slavery, which is the only kind of slavery, and uh, therefore you're wrong, and it was fine. And in fact, yeah. the Irish oppressed many people. Oh, yeah. The Welsh, for example. Well, uh, the, uh, we, we had, uh, there was, I think, for a period of 100 years, maybe, I don't know, uh, in an Irish-speaking uh, colony somewhere around Pembrokeshire, uh, where they spoke Gaelic instead of Welsh, or as it used to be called in the others, Britain, because, of course, Wales hadn't happened yet. Wales is just the Saxon word meaning foreign, it's from the Germanic word. But, of course, what they spoke in Wales would have been spoken all over Britain and into Scotland, except where the Picts were. But, yeah, we, 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 we oppressed people in parts of the coastal Wales, uh, we oppressed people on the west coast of Scotland, where we set up the Kingdom of Dalriada. Oh, savage, Gary, savage, horrible, imperial ambitions there. And I think we should all sit around in a, in a circle and pour ashes on our foreheads and rent our garments. Uh, in, good enough of rending garments. Yeah, mm-hmm. nobody rents a garment anymore. And we should make, uh, well, I don't know, who do you, who, it's what? Five, fifteen, sixteen hundred years ago, but you know that's no excuse. That's no excuse. Say it was sixteen, seventeen hundred years ago. These things happened. We need to sit down and we need to own up to our uh, our imperial past and our oppression. Mm, that does seem to be the general tone. Much the same way as much the same way as the great slave trading kingdoms of West Africa have done and have gone to the United States. Um, with money and compensation to give to the people that they sold into slavery. Yeah, Michael, if those people, if those people didn't want to be sold into slavery, they should have fought better. Or not signed the permission slip. That's true. Sometimes an internship is in fact chattel slavery. Yeah. So you know, I think so, you, a lot of these people probably find the interns, and then they're all coming. Oh, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Lot, lot less. Uh, getting coffee than you expected and a lot more moving heavy quantities of cotton. Yeah, then the beatings and the you know and the, the whippings and the cats and nine tails and the getting and the being burnt alive and the and being crucified and having limbs chopped off. That was all probably a disincentive. Yeah, then you get you know management management theories change with the ages, Gary. We shouldn't look back and say, weren't they silly? They were just doing it in the way that was of its time. It was bef- before Norman Vincent Peale. It was a time when the expected approach was the beatings will continue until the morale improves. You know what? I've always subscribed, I have always subscribed to that theory. That's what I like. As long as I'm the one improving morale, of course. Yes, everyone kind of falls into that. So from uh, unhappy internships to what seems to be unhappy guards, there's a story doing around 
And it's about a priest who is on his last warning by guards that if he keeps if he keeps holding public masses, they're going to have to arrest him. And I think it's worth talking about because you can even in the written form, you can feel the guard's sense of just a please. Like, we don't want to do this. Just stop. I I have a sympathy for for everybody involved here because I I was stopped um, last Sunday, Sunday before, coming back from the seaside, which is within five kilometers of my house. I should point out, and there is a young guard, a Gary. I have never seen a guard or a young man so contorted with embarrassment in the course of carrying out his duties, his functions. Stop the car. He came to the pass. He was at the passenger side, so I, I brought, put down the window and put my mask on. He had his mask on, and he stood, even though he was at the passenger side, away from me, uh, and so already a certain distance. Like he was, he stood another two yards. He sort of half looked at me. He said, uh, "Hello, sir. How are you?" Could I, I was wondering, so. Um, uh, um, uh, where were you uh, going to come from? And he sort of got it out. The, <laughs> and I said, I was down at the beach. I was going, I just got down for a walk in Bellamy. And I said, oh, lovely, lovely, great, great, grand, 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 grand. I've gone, so gone, so gone. He was contorted with embarrassment that this is what he'd been doing. You know, he'd gone into this job, I don't know, to bring down drug kingpins in Finglas or something protect little old ladies from the depredations of the, the criminal classes. And there he was, stopping respectable people, coming back from a walk on the beach. And I, I suspect that there are a lot of guards out there who must feel similar. I mean, in every profession you're going to have pricks who like a bit of power, but I, I, I'm sure most guards. But in this case, Gary, can you not feel them? You can feel them say, oh, please, please. I, I mean, I, I don't want to be the man on the front page of the Independent arrest of the guard, arrest of the priest, who will absolutely have to be in full robes, full chasm in the works, pulling the priest out of the church, arresting the priest for saying mass. You know, see, we are a people raised on, you know, the penal laws and the mass rock and the silence of the people to hear the redcoats coming as they would foregather in danger to hear the celebration of the Mass. No, no, and now he's the guard that's going to arrest the priest for saying Mass. I mean, I know, I, I have a number of friends who are guards, and they'll do their job, and they'll try and do it well, but they're also not terribly comfortable with a lot of this, because whatever it is for those laws to be in place, to be the person who enforces it, particularly in this situation like you'd be pulling this you'd be handcuffing the priest and you look over and like you this old woman will be looking at you <laughs> you're going, oh christ <laughs> you, there's not going to, there's going to be a there's going to be so many people out there with their phones on video <laughs> point, pointing them at you and you will be ill for every inch and that would be just that would be just in ireland yeah this would that needs to be international where is the parish gary yeah, it's me. in cavan in Cavan. Yeah. Cavan. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not even in D six. You know, it's not it's not in the heartlands of the post Christian secular republic. It's in Cavan. Also imagine the slagging. 
that the police officer responsible for this, the one yeah. who actually like puts him into the car, will receive at the station for years to come. Well, I, I, can I have a small bet with you now? That whoever does it will forever, ever after, his nickname will be Cromwell. <laughs> How are you, Cromwell? How are you doing? How's Cromwell? Well, Ollie. Into the <laughs> into the car and his hat being knocked over because it's very tall. And then them having to chase this priestly hat around while the community gathers to stare disapprovingly at it. And someone goes, ah, here, lads. At, at, at some stage, if enough of the old ladies can get together, they'll start to sing some hymns suitable to the occasion. Um, oh, what was the one? Um, we used to sing it when I was a very, very small child for Oliver Plunkett. Um, something to do with martyrs. There's one with martyrs and blood in it. I can't remember what it is now, but it'll come to me. And... If they're not calling him Cromwell, you know, on, on his on more relaxed moments, they'll call him Ollie. <laughs> Guarantee you, the the man that arrests the first priest will be will be forever though. He will be Cromwell. Yeah, I I, I do like the sort of now, now you're being warned. Now, yeah. Now, this, now, like stop that, and they're like, okay, now this is the final warning. You do this again, and then there will be a final final warning. It'll be your your weak parents. You those weak parents. You see. In supermarkets or in, in restaurants, and with they're dealing with a fractious child. Now, 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 Quiva, I've told you. Mummy will be very annoyed, Quiva. No, 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 Quiva. I'm telling you now, Quiva. No, Quiva. And the child just goes on the depredations of eating everybody else's breadsticks or upending the fish counter. But the, they, they just keep going. Oh, no, they just keep repeating the same thing. You have to sense there's a sergeant somewhere. and we're talking about a priest. There's a sergeant now who has got religion and he is praying desperately that if he... Could the bishop not do something? Please. Well, it sounds like the, the bishop did try and do something. Francis Duffy uh, apparently contacted this priest and, you know, told him he was in dangerous territory. And if he continued to say mass with the church open, a complaint would probably be made to the uh, Gardaí. So I think what's happening is the priest has said he won't close the doors. That would be an insult to the people, but he will say mask at irregular times, so you know people won't know when to attend. Oh yeah, 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 that'll yeah, yeah. work. Yeah, nobody would know. Yeah. He'll keep it. He'll keep it a complete secret. Yeah, so he. Mm. Um, I think he'll, he, he, the ringing of the bell before mass that won't be a clue. <laughs> that that won't let anybody know, as they come from miles around. <laughs> dong. Yeah, okay. I wonder what that bell means, Daddy. I just, I want to see a priest, a fully robed priest, outside his church, saying, no, 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 that's, um, that's just the microwave. I, I'm <laughs> making burritos. Yeah, hot pocket. Oh, look, all of these people are coming for the burritos. For the burritos. I have not enough burritos for you all. I always get uh, barobed before having burritos. I like the danger. <laughs> you I'm wearing red because it doesn't show the stains. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well. You know what? I wouldn't. I was going to say joking aside, but why? Why bother? Joking could 
there are quite a few people in I've been listening to for quite some time now who have been slightly bemoaning the fact that in the whole of the country, a country rich in martyrs for the faith, priests and lay people alike, Wexford, of course, particularly rich, famously the Wexford martyrs, uh, there hasn't been a single priest willing to put himself forward and to, to do choking. Now, I suspect that actually it's not that there is no priest out there who has the courage to do it, but rather the priests are, feel caught in a position where they have to promote the public good, that they have a duty as faith leaders and so and community leaders to promote those things which are for the common good, and that these regulations are for the benefit of the community. But I think they've reached a point now, at least some of them, where they just say, we are not a risk. Gary, did you see the uh, the data? I thought they were very interesting data, say, in this context. The Public Public Health England published data from the NHS Track and Trace thing to find out where the mo where you were, in theory, most likely to catch COVID. The reason I bring it up is because I, I, I went through it, and unless the church is considered to be hospitality, it's not on the list of places. And the list goes down to 1%. 1% of cases were tracked to restaurant or cafe. 1.8% to nursery, preschools, and so on. 18%, interestingly, to supermarkets. But church services do not seem to be a high-risk uh, activity for the spe for the spreading of COVID. I mean, I on one hand, churchgoers tend to be older. Yes, at least in Ireland. I don't think in Ireland we've we do seem to have a fair amount of young religious adherents, but I don't think we have anything like. I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, French Catholic churches, Michael. There's this weird. You have the really old. You've no one in the middle, and then you've massive amounts of young people. Yes, yes. It's, I don't uh, think we've gone that way, although no, I don't think there no. is. But so on one hand, yes, it's it's the demographic most at danger, uh, just due to their age. But the other hand, most churches are very spacious for the size of the congregations in them. It would be very easy to maintain social distancing and quite substantial social distancing. Of and, them. and they have been extremely punctilious in their application of these regs. In my local parish church, which is a church which would comfortably, you get 500, 600 people inside it, if, if you if you wanted to. Uh, so 25 people, 30, 50 people, socially distances, they are spread far, far and wide. You had the parish priest standing outside with a little number clicker as each person went in. And when the last person went in, the doors were closed. Mm. You know? So they have been absolutely punctilious about this. They take their role seriously for safety. What are you sniggering at? Go on. What? No, I just, I just like the idea of, of like a priest with a clicker and then someone trying to walk in just being pushed back. And the <laughs> no, no, yeah. Kingdom of Heaven's closed today. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe the door just closed and a little sign popping down that says it. Kingdom of Heaven at capacity. Actually, it was quite funny because it, occasionally he would spot uh, ladies of particular, a peculiar piety 
And I saw him one day, he's a, he's such a young, he closed the door over right to a very cat. He just, he just, the only thing you could see was his hand gesturing, you know, that away, away gesture. Away, away, go away, go away. It was like, plague, plague. And these ladies stopping and looking around and what the, what's, what's going on? This, all you could see was this massive Pugin doors, you know, massive neo-Gothic doors. And one in the middle of it, this hand, like his, like thing from the Adams family. Away, away. So I, I think they have reached a certain point, um, where they're just fed up. And they want to be able to do what they want to do for their communities. And Cavan seems like a good place to start. Uh, if the man, you know what? I've been saying for some time, what the Irish church needs desperately is a bit of an old persecution. Good, hard bit of a persecution. I, I think a good good persecution would really bring the Catholic church back into its own. Yeah, they, they rediscover themselves. And it would it'd do them no harm at all. They've gotten a bit too soft. I mean, I was talking well, to some of the evangelicals during the lockdown, and they're like, what can we do? And they're like, well, politically, here are your options, and media-wise, here are your options. And they're like, now, if that doesn't work, I was like, well, you can either accept the common good argument that it's better for the churches to stay closed, or you can just stay open. And fairly high chance you'll eventually be arrested. Uh, but you know that's your that's your choice there. I think priests in Ireland seem to be sort of open to that sort of thing. The bishops seem to very much not want that to happen. No, the bishops are absolutely terrified of anything which might in implicate them in the in in any kind of risky behaviour. Because and to be fair to the bishops, there are more than one or two people in Ireland who would be perfectly happy to be able to stick the death of some elderly parishioners to the bishops and to their risky behaviour and their you know, lack of concern for the wider public good, their arrogance. Ah, you see what they did? They're killing people. Because that's what we're being told. If you don't if you don't if you don't do this you're gonna kill your granny. Unless you're in RTE as we found out uh Today, was it? <laughs> yeah. Where you can, you can, oh, a picture can come out of all of you standing right together and you can say, well, we were all very socially distanced, apart from the point when photos were taken, where, yes, we did come within distance and take off masks and things. But other than that, absolutely socially distanced. And that will be uh, good enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think perfectly fine to do that. I don't care what or you do. At the very worst, they hurt themselves. But uh, I suspect there will be a difference in the tone towards this as there was towards any of the other instances we've seen of people being photographed slightly too close to each other. I don't care. Yet again, your, your, your corrosive cynicism is showing through. I don't think. I'm sure RT will deal with this in the fair, informative, balanced, impartial and truthful way that they deal with everything. Yeah, I, I think the people in that photo are sort of high, quite high in RTE as well. Well, I'm sure they're just high on life. Hmm. Anyway, it's still Friday, isn't it? It's still Friday. It's still Friday for a while now. So, I suppose we could uh, decide to desist and release these people until comes Sunday when we may have an opportunity to return 
to the miscellany of all of the happenings of the week and the new things that happen over the weekend, whatever that might be. Hopefully we shall all be hale and hearty and well. Is the weather going to get better? Oh, I hope so. I want to go somewhere and take some sun from my mission. Somewhere, do some things of a mysterious nature. No, I'll tell you what I want. I want someone to arrive at my house in a helicopter and take me within five to an to an airplane, and then from that airplane to take me to somewhere where there is a warm sea and a beach, and people who will bring me drinks in a coconut. When I edit this, I might cut out everything you said after "take me." <laughs> you know what? That would do either. I. But anyway, so anyway, we'll we'll leave it there, and we will be now back. I can't get the image of you in like a white ruffled shirt, open, <laughs> long hair, linen. On a rock, for some reason, by the ocean, just languid. Like a merman. As a, or a, a siren. Like the cover of a bad woman's romance novel. Yes, and I would be an... Well, of course, what would I be? An engineer or a pirate, maybe? A buccaneer? I don't know. I'm not comfortable with the direction our relationship is moving in. Yeah, well, I don't think we have a relationship, so you, should, you can feel comfortable about that. We shall leave the people to go back about their business and we shall return on Sunday. Go with God. Unless the door is closed. Bye-bye.